so much as always for joining us as we roll into the second year of Critical Care Commute. I'm going to turn most of this over to my good friend, Leon Baker. Uh, I'm Peter Brinley, an intensivist and professor at the University of Alberta. Leon, introduce yourself and definitely uh, make a big fuss over introducing our guest today. Thanks, Peter, and welcome to all the listeners. Yeah, it's been a year. It's been an amazing ride. Thanks for listening. And uh, So I'm Leon Baker, critical care doc uh, in Edmonton, Alberta. But today we have the honor of speaking with Dr. Neil Spensley, Peds intensivist from Scotland and patient safety guru. Stay tuned to this episode as we will be talking about the institution's role in patient safety, safety one, safety two, all sorts of safety buzzwordery or not, or wherever this chat takes us. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Delighted. Uh, so, Neil, I'll jump right in. Take us to the early years. The baby doctor, Neil Spensley. I know that you've you've traveled the world training. Give us a bit of a glimpse. Where did it start and where are you now? Well, I was uh, born in Edinburgh, uh, went up to Inverness when I was uh, four years old because my father got a position in anesthesiology. So Inverness is in the Highlands of Scotland. And then at 18, I had some reasonable grades and with no real imagination thought that medicine seemed quite good because both my parents were doctors. Uh, I went back to Edinburgh to study. So I was there for five years back up to Inverness to do my house job. Um, I wasn't really too aware of safety at that point, although I do very clearly remember looking out over a lovely view of the sun coming up over the highlands whilst administering some flucloxacillin to a patient. And I was just a wee bit worried by the fact that the stuff I was giving was precipitated. And I just didn't like the look of that. You know, you normally being a bloke and a boy, I would just give it, you know, and because, you know, it's, it's time consuming to go and check and all these things. But on this occasion, I did check. And I went back and lo and behold, there were the two buckets of um, dilutant in the prep room. Um, and one of the potassium chlorides had gone over into the sodium chloride bucket, and I had made it up with potassium chloride. And had I given that, then I would be potentially not uh, speaking to you today, and he would certainly not be alive. And so that was my first sort of thought about that system maybe caused me to to do that. There was no malice aforethought. It was five o'clock in the morning. I was wide awake. Um, I was reasonably well rested, surprisingly enough. I then went, I didn't know what to do after that. So I did some accident and emergency, some ED. And then I thought, well, I need to do some proper career. And I looked back into what I loved in uh, medical school, and that was pediatrics. I went to Glasgow, to York Hill Children's Hospital. I then off, went off to Australia, to Sydney, to do intensive care medicine, more intensive care, and thought, I'm never going to do that again until my mentor said, you should really consider intensive care. Went back into general pediatrics and I thought, you're right, this is not for me. Started the training program for intensive care and then I did my final 18 months in Vancouver. Um, so under uh, Tex Kassoon and Peter Skippen and Mary Bennett, Peter was into this thing called patient safety, which I'd never really heard of. And then I came back to Glasgow as a consultant, did my patient safety program. That must have been about seven or eight years ago. So Scotland has a national patient safety program and it was one of the first countries ever. We learned about QI in a very rudimentary fashion. But what I realized was that I wasn't convinced that if you're looking at the special cause that was on these run charts, that that was necessarily a hallmark of how your system worked. And I was always worried about the fact that 
we went after the special cause, which was probably naturally a problem, an error, an incident, an accident, something potentially associated with morbidity or mortality. And yet every day in intensive care, the vast majority seems to go well. And nobody was looking at the natural resonance of the system, which is probably showing the success of your every day and why you come out of intensive care the majority of the time, not always, and nothing's happened. For me, that's sort of nothing happening. The silence of nothing happening is the silence of safety, the silence of success, and we don't look at it. And then I was down at a risky business conference, and the last presenter came on to the stage just before lunch. And this was Eric Honagel, who is a human factors engineer, psychologist, um, and one of the guys who has helped disseminate the theories of resilience engineering Safety one, safety two, safety one, looking at what goes wrong. Safety two is looking at why things go right or why they go wrong in the background of what normally works. So he said, if it's gone wrong once before, it's likely to have gone right a million times before then. And at that point, I was less hungry and I sat down and listened. It's made me look at safety in a different way. But it's also revealed for me, which has been slightly troubling, is that we have often, I think, in healthcare, misinterpreted safety. We are judging safety by how safe your system is by how it goes wrong. But let's delve deeper. You've mentioned it, you've alluded to it. Safety one versus safety two. Tell us a bit more, what exactly is safety one versus safety two, which which arguably is perhaps better? Well, I think it's a continuum. And I think that's where maybe safety one and safety two potentially has not gained as much traction as it should have done because people think it's an either or. So safety one is usually looking at what goes wrong. And do you know what? Safety one has actually been very helpful. The world is a safer place to a certain extent than it was, you know, X years ago. And safety one is it's important that we continue to look at things that go incorrectly because there will be structures and procedures, you know, policies or a system thing that allowed a person at the front line to do an unsafe act, even though at that point it made perfect sense to them at the time. Particularly in healthcare, it's very rare that people will do something that makes no sense to them or they feel incredibly uncomfortable about. But safety two is looking at what goes wrong, but in the context of what normally works. Because the vast majority of what we do every day, particularly in intensive care, is successful. And as my dad said, you know, many moons ago, he says, my dear boy, every day in intensive care is a prototype. It's unique. It's never been done before. And yet most of the time it's it's successful. Now, where I think we've kind of potentially fallen down, safety one and safety two is a, a continuum. You can't do potentially one without the other. And in fact, if you look at safety ones, then you could ask yourself a couple of questions. You know, if something has gone wrong, well, why has it gone wrong? And that's an important question to ask because um, there may well be a lot of learning depending how you create that learning and the environment that you create that learning. But the other question it asks is, well, why has it never happened before? You know, what is it that the team have done consistently with the same infrastructure, uh, the same patient demographic, the same procedure, the same this and the next thing, which means that it's, it's, it's never happened before? What is it that they are doing, which means that they have adapted to the everyday conditions of work? And I think that's where resilient healthcare is going down, because I think there is that blurring. And I wonder and I worry that people going back to extol the virtues of safety two are saying you don't need to do safety one anymore. And then that actually doesn't create that in and that correct narrative to speak to 
other people who are funding you, who are in a managerial position, who have been taught by, you know, airline industries and things like that, that this is the way to do it, to only focus at, in, at accidents. Um, and the worry about focusing on accidents, I think, is because we have got completely consumed by the um, notion of human error. And human error is a very interesting term in that if you speak to the safety scientists around the world, the sociologists, psychologists, they're not entirely sure what it means, but they know what it infers. It, it was him. And often, I think, in healthcare, we go into an investigation with a preconception. We will find what we are looking for. The people who are doing the investigation when something has gone wrong have got the one piece of information that the people at the time when something happened didn't, and that is the outcome. So we go into these sort of investigations in a sort of like a safety one maneuver with a preconception of what's happened. We've already made up our minds what the issue was, who was standing next to the problem, and we post-rationalize bits of information that we have and come up to, you know, the outcome that we've cleverly already decided. And I worry, and there's a lot of sort of discussion about this, that it actually is a barrier to safety because we have very little time or training in doing safety investigations in healthcare. We're using quality improvement to identify very, very weakly things that might be going wrong. So we isolate the person beside the problem rather than looking at the decade of system issues. And to my mind, some of the patient safety stuff as a result of that, looking at what goes wrong, is actually closing down the capacity to learn. What needs to be safe is your two-way feedback mechanisms and the two-way feedback mechanisms you have with people on the front line. You know, particularly in intensive care, when I say no two days are the same, the only thing that I truly know when I come to work is my start time. So how do you create the capacity to pick up all these subtle nuances of change? Um, how do you get more eyes and ears? How do you use sort of asset-based community design, which is everybody has a skill, everybody has a passion that you need in order for your system to work, but you don't have yourself. So it's just trying to tap into as many people as possible to get almost like the second story, because the first story is the obvious thing that has gone wrong. The solution to the first story, using our current patient safety mechanisms, inevitably ends up with somebody, you know, you know, being blamed or isolated or... Is that the, is that the so-called second victim that I've heard you refer to before? Yeah, so the second victim phenomenon is when you have that deep-seated feel of, you know, shame essentially. You know, you're so worried and anxious about being involved with the morbidity or the mortality of a patient that you have that feeling that it's entirely, you know, your fault. And it's, you know, I have been uh, several times mentally put myself in a box under a bridge for the rest of mm -hmm. you know, life because I have made, I have made an error. I have committed something that has created this this problem when actually the way I think about it now is that potentially you know accidents are not pop-up events accidents and errors and things have been in the pipeline probably for you know days weeks decades we just happen to create this set this situation for parts of the system to come together in a unique way for it to happen and then by the time that we look back retrospectively the system has done what it always does which is move on we can't recreate those. I mean, Eric Honagel would say that patient safety is very important, but maybe system performance is more important. And that's what we should be looking at. Because with 
patient safety itself, you do something which I don't, which might be sort of a bit weird, but I don't tend to put the patient first. You know, I put the staff first and then you can create that sort of common goal, common perspective in order to get the best patient care. And it's really about how do we manage to create the conditions of work so that your team is adaptable to everyday work. Quite often a solution for an incident that has maybe gone wrong is to rewrite the protocol or write another protocol or expand the protocol. You know, and I heard a good thing the other day said, you know, guy said a, a good protocol is one that will gather dust on a shelf. A really thorough one is the one that can hold, hold open an oak door in a hurricane. So, you know, it's obviously going to be this thick and nobody's going to read it. Um, and then if it happens again, then you may get sort of blamed down the line because you hadn't read the protocol, which you didn't either know existed or was unreadable. It's this, some interesting stuff, I think, coming out of Sydney now is that people are thinking, well, maybe we should deprotocolize. Maybe we can be safer if we take some protocols away. But it's very difficult to do. You know, it's like it's easy for us to start a medication, but we're far worse at stopping it. None of this stuff is new. You know, it's all been in the background for decades. But if you look at Barry Turner's work, which is man-made accidents, or Ross Perot, and uh, so Charles Perot, he was a sociologist and one of the guys who attended Three Mile Island. So Three Mile Island was when um, one of the reactor two in Three Mile Island nuclear um, plant melted for various reasons. It was interesting because they brought in a whole load of psychologists and sociologists and human factors engineers. Uh, no medics, oddly. No medic was asked to come in and have a look at the what the, the accident might have been due to. But they realized that it was partly due to the design of the system that baffled the people on the front line, which made it very difficult for them to A, pick up the problem and B, sort it out. But what they also realized was despite the um, automation, the design of the system, which made it difficult to pinpoint what the problem was, it was actually people that sorted it out. And yet if you look at the report of it all, it's very interesting that the people were, you know, to a certain extent, accused and blamed for not being able to immediately sort out or predict that, um, you know, something was going wrong. And what they realized was it was the design of that system that um, created the accident. So what they realized was that complexity creates two things. It creates things called interdependencies and tight coupling. So by redesigning your system, you can bring parts of your system together that have never been brought together before. If they are tightly coupled, that means that one part can affect another extremely quickly. And if they're interdependent, then if one part changes, the other part will change as well. And I think in healthcare, to a certain extent, that's what we're seeing, is that we are designing in more and more intricate systems, more and more complex uh, interventions, and we have got new protocols and new guidelines which are difficult to follow. We are creating connections, interdependencies, tight couplings, which potentially are creating accidents as a result of complexity. The, the thing that smooths over the complexity and the day-to-day -day ups and downs of, of healthcare is, of course, us. You know, we're the ones that make, make nothing happen. And all this stuff is extremely well-meaning with patient safety. You know, every system is stretched. You know, there's no slack in our system at all. The thing that actually makes the difference um, is the, is the well-rested nurse with her finger on the pulse 
who's allowed to do what she thinks is right at the time. Well, I'm, I'm going to pick up on what you said about the well-rested nurse with the finger on the pulse and a huge fan of patient safety, obviously. You have to be. Everyone is. We can't have 747s crashing on a daily basis. Huge fan of System 1, System 2. I do worry, though, that we've, I don't know, weaponized or, or turned it into another little cottage industry, this idea of big P patient, big S safety. In other words, we all nip off to conferences in San Diego in February, or we have meetings in the back room away from the actual clinicians doing the day-to-day work. We, you know, fail safes and standard operating procedures, incredibly important things, very rapidly become, no doctor, you can't do that, the protocol says otherwise fighting against the bureaucracy rather than putting the patient at the center. So, you know, have we created a beast as well as creating a savior? Yes. I mean, I think that's probably quite a good way of putting it, you know. And it's interesting, the standard operating procedures, because to a certain extent, you could argue that a standard operating procedure is designed for average. And do we truly see, you know, average patients on a day-to-day basis? And so we try and shoehorn um, everything into every patient into this into this one procedure, their protocol or whatever. And I think it's interesting because sometimes we follow a protocol or procedure because it's safer for us as doctors and nurses. Because if we deviate off it, even though we know that what's in front of us physiologically is not what's in front of us on the piece of paper, um, it's safer for us to you know, go down that protocol because if we get retrospectively interrogated or questioned about why it went wrong, we say, well, did you follow the protocol? Well, we did actually to the complete letter. There's a good article by Sidney Decker called Malicious Compliance. It's about people, you know, one of the most incredible things to really stuff up your system is to work to rule. And it was about, I think, the French taxi drivers in Paris who, you know, they knew that they could be disruptive by going on strike, but they knew they could be more disruptive by working to rule and following the protocols and the guidelines. And of course, then the thing would be that, well, you can, you you can obviously deviate, you can obviously use your common sense. To which the reply is, well, how much common sense do you want us to use? Um, And no two common senses are the same. One person's common sense is another person's, you know, willful neglect. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it's it's a kind of a worry that, you know, we are creating constraint, I think is what we're doing. So, and, and it's well-meaning and you're right, everybody's into patient safety, everybody wants the best for their patients. But I sometimes worry that if you're looking at the sort of the patient safety movement, you know, maybe there are other ways that we could think of doing it. And maybe it's actually looking at how do we manage to look at everyday work? Why does work work? Why it is sometime it doesn't work, that's fine. But it does prompt the question as why, if it didn't work today, has it worked for the last, you know, 10, um, you know, 10 years? And thinking about, you know, complexity and interactions, I think the best example I've seen of that is um, a ruler. You remember the old rulers that we had in our day, Peter, the wooden rulers with the two holes in the end, and you could stick a, you could put the ruler up on a, on a pin and then you could store it there, but you could rotate it around. So you can have- many of them, many of them were whacked against my backside. And I was just about to suggest that yours may be broken and splintered in the headmaster's uh, bin. <laughs> but anyway, so if you put a, a, a you know ruler up on its pin and you put another ruler up on it, the pin, you can spin them around. And there's only one direction that they can go, and that's the way that you spin them. And if you look at the passage uh, of the end of the ruler, it's only going to do one thing, and that's form a circle. And it doesn't matter who does it, and how hard you do it, it only forms a circle. There's no interaction between those two rulers. It's very, very predictable. 
So you think I'm a bit bored with that now, so I'm going to spice it up. So I'll take one ruler off and I'll attach it to the end of the other ruler. So if you let it go, then you've got one ruler at the top attached by a pin to the wall. And then further down, you've got another. It's attached to the other ruler just with a loose coupling so it's easy to spin. You then take it to two o'clock and you let it go. So that has with, and people have looked at this with big foreheads and brown lab coats, and they've looked at it and they have realized, even using chaos theory, that it is mathematically now impossible to prove where the trajectory of the end of the second ruler is going to go. Not a clue. And that's two pieces of wood. you know. And if you think about it, nobody has probably actually designed healthcare. We've designed individual components with healthcare, and all those designs and components and systems and um, ICUs are all different and all different within individual hospitals and individual countries or even individual states. So nobody's actually designed healthcare. So we've got this incredible capacity to create interdependencies and connections which are different in each individual hospital. I'll jump in if I may, Neil. I think we actually go further than that in the same way that some businesses hire efficiency experts. It sometimes feels like we've designed inefficiency experts. And I I think you're onto something with sort of deliberately slowing people down so that they follow the protocol. Do organizations get a pass? In other words, do they get all the credit when things go right and we get all the blame when things go wrong? I mean, I, I, I may be being overly dogmatic but you are a pediatric intensivist and your nation has been rocked, by the, quite rightly, by the Lucy Letby scandal. There was an awful sense of us reading it over here that, yep, doctors spoke up. The doctors tried to do patient safety one, safety two. They followed the protocol, but still the beast of the machine kept them quiet. Yeah, I mean, and I think there is an element of that. Although, I mean, the organization that I work in, we're very open with the the, the management team who are very helpful in helping us and support us when things go wrong. Um, and that's the way that they've been trained to and the way that they've looked at it. But they're also very you know well trained and we must look at things that have gone incorrectly. I think there is an element of that. And when you, um, with if we're looking at a sort of a patient issue or a problem that's gone wrong, or a datex, which is just basically investigating when you can submit a datex, which is looking at things that go, usually when things go incorrectly. If there's an investigation, then it often is completely um, centered on the actual people at the front line. And there's sometimes I wonder, not in all institutions, but I wonder if there is an element of disconnect. And I sometimes wonder about the use of this must be robust in that if it's robust, the organization itself cannot, um, you know, take the blame. And I think it's, it's, it's that's that sort of safety when mentality is that the old view of safety is that the systems have been designed to make it perfectly safe. And if only there wasn't the bad apple, if only the people had read the instructions better, if only they had read the reminders better, um, if only they had paid attention more, uh, if only had done this, that, and the next thing, if they only weren't just so reckless, um, then this wouldn't have happened. It's it's kind of that sort of thought about Eric Hornagel's stuff about work is imagined and work is done. So work is imagined, I imagine I know what you do. Something's happened. What we're going to do is we're going to put in another four layers of Swiss cheese. We're going to create more and more barriers so this doesn't happen again. Oh, well-meaning. Um, and I'm going to declare you safe from an office about half a mile away. But actually, there's the work as done, and that is what is actually happening at the front line. And so, but you know, that's fine. I mean, work as imagined is, is fine, but actually that's not how my day-to-day work is. Certainly not the first model, which is now 
slightly falling out of favor in that it's looked at as static, um, linear, um, no capacity to show interactions, no real capacity to look at complex systems, which people think it is, but it actually wasn't. It's a good metaphor and it's a good visual thing. But even James Reason, I think, in a Eurocontrol meeting in 2004, said, you know what, I think that Jesus had its day because he too realized at that point that the model was wrong. But that was good for him because he was the loudest voice in the room saying that actually the Swiss cheese model has probably had its had its day. And if you read it, then lots of people think that if you just put another barrier in, then it'll stop that red arrow coming through. Well, James, James Reason, like all clever scientists and uh, thought leaders, realizes that things mature. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a cheese, I guess. So with that in mind, five years from now, what does safety three look like? What is the best combination of making sure bad things don't happen, allowing good things to happen, allowing people to innovate where they should, stay resilient where they should, but not, as you say, be reckless? You know, what is the nirvana? Is it possible? Well, I think it certainly could be much better than it is. There's a big debate about safety three. Somebody else came up with, um, you know, safety three the other other day. But in fact, I think what we should probably move away from is safety one and safety two and just resilient engineering. So the capacity to maintain structure or function um, within your own environment, irrespective of sort of intruders or things that the things that go wrong. My sense is the thing. So what have I done to find out how the system works? Looking at a whole system is actually to do more work as done shifts. So I have worked as um, done nursing shifts. Um, I've done portering shifts. I've done cleaning shifts um, on the ward in order to find out how work is actually done. It's remarkable to find out that the actual disconnect between what I imagined a nurse does and what a nurse actually does. I mean, it's just an entirely different you know, league. And I felt embarrassed that I, I hadn't paid attention to this you know, early enough. So I'm the one who is dictating the ward round, but I'm the only one who sits there for five minutes by the patient every three or four hours. It's actually the bedside nurse that's there for 12. And if I can facilitate her capacity or his capacity to be more adaptable to the ever-changing conditions of work and create the capacity to have those feedback loops, um, then I think that will make the place more safe. And my very last question before I fire it back to Leon, what about efficiency as a metric? You know, I've always worried that we look at safety as if there's only one patient in the entire hospital. And that's why you can slow things down and put up more barriers. Mm -hmm. Because in this imagined post hoc error analysis, there was only one patient in the entire hospital, you could have documented more, you could have taken longer setting up for the line, you could have, you could have, you could have. But your system and my system do both rely on efficiency and, and getting people in and out. It's a tough metric, but it's a darn important one at a community level. It is. You're absolutely right. But I think that's probably under the umbrella of system performance. So again, is efficiency something that you want to really go for? Or do you want to go for system performance? And one of the byproducts that that will be will be efficiency, efficacy, safety, and also well-being, recognizing that well-being is the well-being of your system, rather than which includes the individual or your staff, rather than well-being, which I think has gone slightly derailed and focusing on the individual to be more well because they've been to their well-being lecture, if you see what I mean. So again, it's looking at system performance. And I think that looking at system performance is 
also, probably more importantly, is why did nothing happen today? Yeah, perfect. Neil, you've been an absolute delight. I'm going to hand this back to Leon. Um, and I would point out to anyone listening, looking for good conferences, Spenceley is involved in all the good ones, both the Scottish Intensive Care Society and a pediatric meeting. Leon, over to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. Neil, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your passion and knowledge for patient safety. I mean, patient safety, one, two, three, it was all there. Absolute pleasure. No, it was great fun. It, uh, I always like having a chat uh, with you guys, with young Brindley. We should have a mixture. We have a pint of speckled hen the next time, though, old fellow. Uh, listen, I've agreed with every line you've said except the young Brindley. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a pleasure. And uh, it's been, uh, yeah, a good chat. I, I enjoy doing these things. Thank you for the invite. health information offered on the Critical Care Commute podcast and the resources available for download through the podcast and show notes is provided for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or any individuals featured on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts or their employers.